I'm just going to take a little time, and we're going to walk. Well, not walk. Actually, I'm just going to spend uh, time on one verse out of Galatians. Our church is kind of going through the series in Galatians, so I felt like I'd just pick up sort of that theme. I want you to turn real quick to Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to read the text, but I'm going to spend time only in one verse, okay? Galatians chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me. Everybody there? Getting there. Almost there. We're there? Okay. So starting in verse 1. Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent from men, no, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ, God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with him. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to rescue us from the present, this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by, by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we've preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody, anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one uh, that you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Verse 11 and 12 reads, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by a revelation from Jesus Christ. Father, today, help us understand the gospel and all the intricacies and facets of it. May it transform us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to hit in 30, 35 minutes, actually, what the gospel is. Now, I know that may be foreign to some of you when you've, some of you have been Christians 3, 5, 10, 15 years and think you get the gospel. I remember 12 years into my Christianity thinking that I had been preaching the real gospel and then realizing, listening to a sermon one day, that absolutely transformed my life and helped me understand the facets of it. Now, the problem is this. When we talk about the gospel, there's a little bit of confusion about what it actually is because some people think of the gospel from the front end of it, right? The Great Commission. We need to go out there and preach the gospel. We need to reach the lost. We need to take this gospel to all the world and make sure they hear the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we think of the gospel as something we do evangelistically. It's the Great Commission. We go out and we go get it done. That's the front end of the gospel. The back end of the gospel is different. Once you've come into Christ, I mean, once you've come into the kingdom, given your life to Christ, you've heard the Great Commission, now you need to move on to the Great Commandment, which is loving your neighbor, doing justice, and bringing shalom in the world and in the city, right? It's about becoming a disciple and having your life impacted and transformed by the, uh, the great commandment. And so what happens is, is that we either get the front end of the gospel or the back end of the gospel, and at some point we miss the very heart and essence of the gospel. 
what the gospel actually is and how it transforms our life. And it's very subtle and very nuanced the way it happens. Because I remember as a black kid who grew up in Inglewood, didn't know Jesus, Sunday going to Venice Beach was my church. Because I was a basketball player and if you went to the boardwalk, they had a gym there. I'm sorry, they had an outdoor court that you harness your skills as an athlete. And so every Sunday I would go to Venice Beach because I love me some Venice Beach. I mean, while you're waiting for the games, you could walk on the boardwalk and they'd have some guys there doing some incredible entertainment, right? They never broke into Hollywood, but they've got these talents. And I remember there's this one guy who literally could take these beams or these poles and he would put them in the ground and he would take a plate and put it on top of the beam and he'd spin the plate and then he'd get another beam and another plate and put that on and spin that but keep this plate spinning simultaneously. And then he'd get another beam and another plate and he'd put that on and he'd start spinning that. Then he'd get another beam and another plate and he'd put that and he'd keep all the other four plates spinning. He would get down to about the 17th plate and the place would be crowded around him. And we, he'd have us, right? He'd get our money at the end. Because plate number two was wobbling off the beam, and we had all in unison, plate two. And he'd run down and whoosh, 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 just before it fell off the plate. And then he'd keep these plates spinning. And I realized often that is what our Christianity over time gets reduced down to, glorified plate spinning. And you know how it works, Right? Somebody, you get saved and somebody says, if you really want to grow in your walk with Jesus, you need to start reading your Bible. So you get your beam and you get your Bible plate and you put it on top of the beam and you start spinning your Bible plate because good Christians read their Bible, right? And then over time, your Bible reading starts getting dull and somebody says, well, you know what? If you really want to fire up your Bible reading, you need to start praying. Intercessory prayer is powerful. You need to go before God, I mean, even God, even Jesus rebuked the disciples about tarrying for an hour. So if you can't get to an hour, at least work your way up to an hour. So you need to start praying. And so you get your prayer plate, stick it on your beam, and you start spinning your prayer plate. But you got to keep your Bible plate spinning because that's what we Christians do. That's how we get down, right? And then over time, somebody tells you, you know what? If you really want to live for Jesus... You need to give yourself away to a cause. And you start hearing all this stuff about justice, right? And so you want to do justice, right? That's an extension of what God's doing in your heart. And you've been challenged to do it, right? And so you get a beam, you get your justice plate, and you stick it on top of the beam, and you start spinning your justice plate. But you got to keep your prayer plate spinning. And you got to keep your Bible plate spinning. And then the missionary comes into town. Now, I love missionaries. And I hate missionaries. Because they come in and they, you know, they challenge you about what they're doing in Timbuktu and how God's power is released and people's lives are transformed. And you're saying to yourself, man, if I could only sacrifice like them. And you evaluate their life uh, by your life and you realize you live by these American values and you become very narcissistic. And so you get your beam and you say, I want to start living more sacrificial. And you get your sacrifice plate and you put that sacrificial plate on top of the beam and you start spinning your sacrificial plate, right? But you keep in your justice plate spinning and you got to keep your prayer plate spinning and you got to keep your Bible plate spinning. And then giving is a little down. And there's going to be a series on not living selfish, but making sure you, you use your money for the kingdom. And so they do a series on giving. 
and it challenges about how you're spending your money. And so you get your beam and you get your giving plate and you stick it on top of that beam and you spin that giving plate while you simultaneously do what? You spin your sacrificial plate. You keep the justice plate spinning. You keep the prayer plate spinning and you keep the Bible plate spinning. And then you find over three, five, 10, 15 years into your Christianity, what you have become is nothing more in your Christianity than a glorified plate spinner. And these things that God gave you, which are good things, God gave you as a means of experiencing his grace, but now you use the plates to try and earn God's grace. And we get there very subtly, you know what I'm saying? We just become very rote, very mechanical in our Christianity, and all of a sudden, the very heart, the very essence of it, right? We're doing the great commission, we're doing the great commandment, but we miss the very heart of what the gospel actually is. And it's no longer sweet, it's no longer tender, it doesn't transform the heart, and after a while, you become a Pharisee, unbeknownst to you. You just do church activity, you do plate spinning, because that's what Christianity is in your mind and heart. Now... How do you get there? How do we get here? I'm going to explain how we get here. I brought this little, I'm not an artist. I'm not that creative. But I figured, let me draw this up for you so you understand how we get there. My man, what's your name? Kevin, how you doing, my man? Okay. So look, this is how we get there. And I'm not saying this is how you get there. Because I know Jesus is burning in your heart, right? But for the rest of us, we, we, but here, here. Here it is. Okay, can you see that line? There we go. So Kevin is born here. Okay? Looking at you, 1981? No, okay. <laughs> Kevin is born 1960-something, right? Still giving you some love, okay? And Kevin dies here, and I won't put a date. I don't want to be prophetic, all right? But Kevin dies here. Now, between Kevin's birth and death, Kevin obviously needed to hear what? The one message. The, right? The gospel, right? We say Kevin needed to hear the gospel that transforms the life of a person. But after Kevin has now come to Christ, right, from the cross to the day Kevin dies, what is it that Kevin needs to hear? Now, most of us would say, well, he needs to hear discipleship, right? Or he needs to hear Bible reading. Or he needs to hear justice, right? Uh, or he needs to hear, you know, getting plugged into a community. Or he needs to hear, you know, giving, whatever. And what happens is, is that we subtly think once we come to Jesus, somehow the gospel is the ABCs to our faith. And actually, it should be the A to the Z of our faith. But it isn't. Because we think over time that we graduate past the gospel onto, onto more sophisticated spiritual Christian stuff. As if you can graduate past Jesus, right? Because the heart of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're always mining, combing. We should, uh, let me say this. We should always be mining, combing who Jesus is. But what happens is, is that we think we graduate past the gospel onto more sophisticated discipleship. Or past the gospel into more sophisticated Bible reading. Or past the gospel into doing justice in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. All of these things are very necessary to our Christianity, but you never graduate past the gospel 
into discipleship. You go deeper into the gospel through discipleship. And you never go past the gospel into Bible reading. You go deeper into the gospel through Bible reading. And you never pass the gospel and do justice. You do justice by going deeper into the gospel. You see, everything that you do, the beginning and the very margins and circumference of your Christianity is about mining this one truth that the Bible talks about and it will talk about for all of eternity. And that is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ that transforms the heart. And if you don't get that, you end up doing what you hope you never do and we do it. It's a subtle trap. We just start becoming professional what? Plate spinners. You know what I'm talking about. Look at your Christianity. Look at the list, the litany of stuff that we end up doing. I'm not saying you're a hardcore, hard-nosed Pharisee or legalist, but you can be a soft legalist. But legalism, whether hard or soft, is legalism nonetheless. Period. Now, can we go a little deeper? Can we? You guys, you got a little bit of Scandinavian vibe in here. (laughs) You can talk, all right? Come on, dominant culture, right? You can get a little more more energy, all right? (laughs) Now, Paul here is talking about the gospel six times. He just talks about who bewitched you. Who perverted the gospel? Who gave you a gospel contrary or other? In other words, Paul is saying that if you, if you change the gospel, you reverse the gospel. You make the gospel no gospel at all. And Paul is saying that ultimately the enemy of the gospel is not Mormonism. The enemy of the gospel is not Jehovah Witnesses or Muslims. Right? It's like I grew up in L.A. and you can buy, if you go down to downtown L.A. into the uh, garment district, one of the hardest things to do is shop because you don't know what's real from what's false. Right? Everything looks real. You go, you look at a Gucci bag, you might think it's a real Gucci bag, but actually it may just be a counterfeit Gucci bag or what we call a knockoff Gucci bag. Or you might see a Versace bag and think you got you a Versace. Right? But you actually what you got was a knockoff Versace. Or you might see a, a, what is it, a Hindi? Fendi, there it is, right? You might think you're buying an actual real Fendi, all pumped and excited, right? Got it for $15. <laughs> Thought you was doing something, right? And actually, you bought a knockoff Fendi. See, what happens is often the enemy of Versace is not Fendi or, or, or uh, Gucci. The enemy of Versace is, Versace, or is a knockoff Versace, and the enemy of Gucci is not some other brand. The enemy of Gucci is a knockoff Gucci, and the enemy of Fendi is not some other um, garment bag. What, what, what it is, is is a knockoff Fendi. You see, the enemy of Christianity is a counterfeit Christianity that makes you, actually convinces you that you're doing all this plate spinning, and somehow we call that Christianity. And actually, it's a counterfeit Christianity because underneath the hood of our heart, we're still trying to earn God's favor and love and acceptance. And the beauty of the gospel is, is when it unhooks you, you can start accepting God's acceptance of you, right? Because there's nothing, the gospel says, there's nothing you can do to get God to love you more, and there's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. God loves you, period. You can, you know what I mean? You can crack open a champagne bottle, go in at halftime because the victory is but one. 
And that's what separates Christianity from every other religion, right? Is the fact that we can celebrate. We can drink champagne and enjoy the fact that even before we get into ring to fight, because we do have battles in life, we know that the battle's been won in him. That is the good news of the gospel. Before we start plate spinning, we know that we're not trying to earn God's grace. We're doing it to experience the grace we have in him. That's hard. The gospel is hard to live because the impulse of the human heart is to kind of shore up our own righteousness. Right? We do it in so many different ways. Right? That's the issue of privilege. That's the issue of power. That's the issue of racism. Underneath it, if you distill it down, it's just another way of trying to establish a righteousness. It's works righteousness, whether you're Christian or not. Right? You got a problem with worship or style of worship, and you're angry about worship because it doesn't reflect you. Many of us say, well, yeah, I believe in diversity. I'm good with diversity, but we're right. That's what we really mean. Right? <laughs> But underneath it is just another way of showing up our own rights, patching up our own righteousness because we have not allowed the far-reaching claims of the gospel to go down to the very core of our heart. So when somebody walks up to you after being 12 years into your Christianity, do not cuss them out when they tell you you don't get the gospel. Because the gospel is not something that you got early on in the early stages of your Christianity. It's something you live out every day of your life. It is something you are obsessed and consumed with. It comes and transforms you. It's this alien force, right? It's the red pill to the matrix, right? It's the yellow brick road to the ultimate wizard. It's the closet door to Narnia. The gospel is something absolutely transformational. And when you get that, you can do life. Are you hearing me this morning? Here's what I mean. Can we go further? Here's what I mean. You got the gospel here, okay? And then you've got over here what I call religious folks. And then over here, I'll call this non-religious folks. Now, how many of you guys remember the prodigal son, Luke 15? We've heard that story a gazillion times. The interesting thing is, is that when you look at the parables of the prodigal son, or, or the parables leading up to the, the, the prodigal son, the interesting piece is, is that Jesus gives two parables that actually fit within the construct of that bigger, larger prodigal son narrative. And the first parable goes like this. Jesus is standing in front of religious people, Pharisees and scribes. These are religious people, right? These are the religious power brokers, the power lead of, of the Jewish faith. And then you've got these tax collectors and sinners, right? The evil, evilest, the darkest, the grimiest, um, marginalized people on the planet standing there listening to Jesus teach. And he goes into the sermon, good people, bad people, right? Religious people, non-religious people. And he goes into the parable. What's the parable? The first parable is, is about this shepherd who has 100 sheep and he loses one. And he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Then Jesus goes because that one was lost, right? And then he said, goes into the very next parable. And the next parable is this woman who had 10 silver coins and she loses one. And she sweeps her whole house to find the one coin that was lost. 
And then he goes into this story of the parable son. And he doesn't talk about one lost son, even though we focus on the prodigal son. Actually, it's about two lost sons. And Jesus gives the story about lostness. The first story is the guy that takes, right, we call him the non-religious younger brother. Or what we call in our culture today, the nuns, right? There's this growing religious population called the nuns. They want no religious context. They want no religious affiliations. They want no connection to any kind of institutional faith. The nuns, the prodigal son. He takes his father's inheritance to a foreign country, and he squanders his, his father's wealth on loose living. And then he spends all his dad's inheritance, and he's in a pig slop, and he thinks to himself, I will go home and be like one of my father's hired slaves. So when he goes back, interesting enough, he doesn't even go back seeing himself as a son. He goes back seeing himself as a slave. That's what he had reduced himself down to. So even when he came to his father, he still had a dysfunctional relationship with his father. Now, here's the interesting piece. The older brother, angry and ambivalent about his younger brother coming home and his father giving him a robe ring and a fatted calf and celebrating the fact that he had come to his senses and his dad consequently threw a party for the younger brother, the older brother's ticked off. So the father has to come outside and have a conversation with him. And the father's trying to figure out why he's so angry. And he says, for so many years, I've never neglected your commands. I've been plate spinning my whole life. And yet you've not thrown a party for me. And it's interesting what the father says. He says, he says son, all that I have is yours. Here's a teachable moment for the older brother to understand what the heart of the father is, which is what? It's the gospel, which is, son, you don't have to work for this. Why are you working for what you already have? You see, when you plate spin and not understand the heart of the gospel, you're always trying to work for righteousness, work for acceptance, work for favor, work to get blessed, work to try and curry God's acceptance in your life, not understanding that you're working for, for what the gospel already says you have in him. And so, like the nun, like the prodigal son that came home as a slave, the older brother never left his father's side, but was still working as a slave. And so both of these people were using, both of these sons were using their father. Both of them were dysfunctional. And Jesus is giving this backdrop of this theological ideal of lostness, saying that there's two sons that are lost. Those that are outside the church, in the world, throwing their life away on loose living, and those inside the church. And interesting, when you look at the parables of Jesus, oftentimes Jesus would stack a good and a, and a bad person together, and he'd give a parable, and at the end of the parable, the bad person gets it, and the good person doesn't. Because they're too lost in their plate spinning. They're too lost in the trying to be good. Are you hearing me this morning? You see, the lost person over here living out in the world needs to repent. If you don't know Jesus, listen to me. You don't need Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you need to repent. And I'll tell you what, I will, I'm going to explain why you need to repent in a little bit. But you need to repent right now. Right? For living in this world trying to redeem yourself through stuff through your career, through your money, through your degree, through your home, through your beautiful wife, through your Corvette, through your whatever, trying to save yourself. 
But you over here, Christian, you need to repent. And you know what you need to repent of? Trying to be a Christian. And this is harder to repent of. That's why Jesus, that's why Jesus had such a hard time with religious folks. Here's how you know you're preaching the gospel. It's not when the world uh, objects to you. It's, it's when the church objects to you. It's when Christians object to you. You see what I'm saying? It's when religious folks hang you up on a cross, when they are the ones that sell you out. That's when you know you're preaching the gospel, when Christians don't get it. And here's how they don't get it. Moving on. The religious people. You see, the gospel is the good news of the person and work. This is a J. Sorry about that. Good work of Jesus, right? This is good news in the personal work of Jesus. Now, here's the religious people. This is how they do it, right? This is a stick man, okay? There's a stick man. I know that's not really artistic. But in the stick man, in his heart or her heart, she struggles or he struggles with sin. And that sin makes him or her feel, I'll put this G here, for guilt. They feel guilty. And typically, when you feel guilt because of sin, what happens is, is that guilt draw, draws you to some law, right? Because you got to fix the guilt because of sin. Now, the Bible is the, the Bible's different because the Bible says the law can't fix you. It can only show you how sinful you are. That's Romans 3, Romans 5, Galatians, end of Galatians chapter 2. The law is designed to show you how sinful you are, that you can't fix yourself, Right? that an imperfect person can never do perfect things, right? And, and there's only two ways to, to God, right? It's either believe in Jesus or live perfectly. And because nobody can live perfectly, that's the point of the law. you got to believe in Jesus to get to the Father. But some of us, what we do is, is that we try and use the law to try and fix ourselves. It's like when you go to a doctor or, or because you feel like you've got some kind of problem in your wrist, you don't know what it is, and the nurse comes in and x-rays your wrist and then has you sit down, and you're sitting there wondering what's going on, and they come back in, the nurse comes back in and shows you the results and says, Mr. Jones, you got a hairline fracture. Let me show you right here, right? And that's what the nurse is supposed to do, right? Show you the problem. Now, if the nurse then starts pulling out the equipment to reset your wrist and then put a cast on it, you might look at the nurse funny because the nurse is certified to prepare you for the physician, but can't act as a physician, right? It can only show you the problem, but it can't fix the problem. It can show you the results, but it has no answers for the results. It can only prepare you for the physician, but it can't act on that information. That's the law, you guys, right? It can show you how sinful, how dark, how evil, how wicked you are, but as soon as you start using that or plate spinning to try and fix your spiritual problem or your spiritual condition, it's going to exacerbate you because the law, all it does is, is assuage sin, right? That's what the Bible says. It shows you how evil you are. In fact, it even arouses sin in you. But if you get on that, you go back to sin. That sin drives you to more guilt, and that guilt drives you to some new book, some new outreach, some new project to get involved in, some new Bible study, some new little prayer technique, some little five-step formula on how to get yourself more holy and righteous so God can use you, right? And so you go to some new law, and then you find yourself back to struggling with sin, and that sin draws you, drives you to more guilt, and that guilt drives you to more 
laws, and then that drives you to more sin. And here you are, one, two, three, going from sin, guilt, law, sin, guilt, law, sin, guilt, law, sin, guilt, law, sin, guilt, law. And that's your Christianity. Boom, 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 flipping the plates, right? And you never, ever, ever understand the beauty and power of the gospel. Now, the nuns, they do it. Really, it's no different from them. See, see, the Christian starts with sin in the heart, drives them to guilt. That guilt drives them to the law. And then that law, right, shows them how sinful they are. And they're back to that old circle, right? It's, it's the dog circling his tail. But this, this guy over here, right, you can call this, what would I call this here? I saw this nice little term. It's called, um, and I don't even have it in here, but it, I think it's called social cognitive behavioral theory. And it does exactly the same thing, right? Forget religion, right? Psychotherapy. But they don't start with the heart. They start with the head. It's about this T, how you think. And that thing dictates how you feel. And that feel affects how you behave, right? Right? So if you don't get the results that you want to get based upon how you behave, you go back to thinking, back to feeling, feeling back to behavior, and you find yourself in the same vicious cycle as this person over here. Now, the interesting thing is, is that both of these stickmen are the same person because they, they suffer from a disease I call anthropocentric or centrism. What? Let's call it so anthropocentric. Anthropocentric. Anthro means man. Centric means centered. Both of these are focused on themselves. You see, you can swap out the religion, you can swap out the philosophy, and ultimately at the end of the day, it's all about you trying to work out your own salvation. Right? Whether you're the prodigal son or the prodigal older brother, you end up doing this. You live in these continuums and you never ever get the far-reaching reality of how the gospel comes to transform the heart. And so what do you end up doing, right? You're over here. Let's say you start over here. You were a nun. You came to Antioch. You gave your life to Jesus. You hopped into the Kilns College, started doing your internship program, and then they started doing justice, 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 justice. Right? And you just was doing your little justice stuff, and then all your justice and works and stuff that you was redeeming the city, all of a sudden that stuff wore you out. Right? So you went from nuns to now to religious activity. Right? And then over time, you're like, man, you know what? This is, man, I'm just going back to the world. It was better. And then sin starts beating you down after a couple years. You'll be back. And you're like, man, I ain't doing this no more, right? I started dating this uh, woman that people told me I shouldn't have. I started thinking that I could live out in the world because that seemed a little sexier than stuff I was doing in the church. And you went back to living your non-religious life. And then it started weighing you down. And guess what? You decided you was coming back to Jesus. But you weren't coming back to Jesus. You were just coming back to religion. Right? And then you started weighing yourself down with religion, and then you were like, down with institutional religion. Done with this institutional crap. I'm going back to something more powerful, right? And you become non-religious, and, and it becomes the gospel of self. But both of these are gospels of self. How so? Let me explain. You see, over here, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. 
You just got to accept it. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you more or less. You just have to accept God's acceptance, as I said earlier, right? It's Jesus plus nothing. And if you say, if you say it, man, that's too loosey-goosey, that's the gospel of grace, it needs to be Jesus, but don't forget, we all have response. Anytime you put but to anything, at the same breath as the gospel, you don't get the gospel, and that's our problem. We always want to clarify the gospel. We always kind of want to neuter it down, right? We want to make it palatable. And we're always smuggling our little works, righteousness, into his finished work. His finished work was enough. When he spread his arms and he said, it's done, it's done. And people always say, well, what do I got to do? Well, let's not get to that because that's the fundamental problem of the human heart. We're always wanting to know what to do. The gospel comes and cuts away the doing and gets to the being, the very essence of who you are in Jesus Christ. And until you can get to that place, don't even talk to me about doing. That's why Paul, when he lays out what the gospel is in the the book of Romans, he spends 80% of the book, the first 10, 11 chapters, talking about justification by faith because he understands the easiest thing in a human heart is to go to the stuff that we want to do. That's why the book of Galatians spends at least 80, 85% of it talking about justification by faith because he knows the easiest thing for us to do is to add a but to the gospel. Listen, get the but out. Twelve minutes. All right. We're moving along here. Are we there? Okay. Everybody with me? Okay. The gospel is the good news. It's the person and work of Jesus. You just need to rest in that. Relax in that. All right? But the problem is, is this is how the religious and non-religious add to it. Let's take it a step further. See, these religious folks over here, it's, it's not Jesus alone. It's Jesus plus their, let's put this performance, P-E-R-F. Jesus plus their performance. And over here, it's Jesus plus, right? It's Jesus. Come on, get out of there. What is, all right, Jesus plus, come on. All right, Jesus plus, let's put their pleasure, right? See, the performing person over here is all about the plate spinning. The Jesus plus pleasure person is, is, is another way of adding to Jesus because what you end up doing is what? You start putting expectations on God, right? I'm going to serve Jesus, but I better be married by. I'm going to serve Jesus, but I better be further along in my career, right? I'm going to serve Jesus, but he better give me a happy, comfortable life. He better not interrupt what what plans I have for my life, right? But underneath it is nothing about Jesus. It's all about their pleasure. And over here, the performing person that doesn't understand plate splitting isn't going to get the job done, right? They're not accepting God's acceptance of them. So underneath their performance, it's still all about them. You see, the sin underneath both of these is this. The Jesus plus performance, they're driven by worthiness, trying to be worthy. The Jesus plus pleasure over here, they're driven by happiness. Now, don't get it twisted. When you give your life to Jesus, guess what? And it's all about the gospel. It's not like we're not going to do anything. But here's the beautiful part is, is that when you get the gospel, performance gets thrown in. Pleasure gets thrown in, right? And now when I perform, I'm not doing it out of law. I'm doing it out of love. I'm not doing it out of duty. I'm doing it out of devotion. And that transforms everything, right? Because all the other pursuits that you're doing is subtle attempts 
at exchanging the false Jesus for the real Jesus, or the, the real Jesus for the false Jesus, right? That's all the pleasure attempts are. When you fall into sexual immorality, what do you think is underneath that sexual act, right? It's an attempt to exchange the real Jesus for a false Jesus. You think somehow in that sexual activity, somehow you're going to get the oneness, the joy, the union, the satisfaction that you believe Jesus can't give you. And so you act out. All acting out of sin is really exchanging the false Jesus, I mean the real Jesus for false Jesuses. Now here's the deal. As I wrap this up, Paul says this. He says, in a nutshell, the gospel is three things. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, and this is the one verse I'm going to hit and I'm done. Verse 4, it says, well, let's start in verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. There's three things that the gospel is there. The first thing is, it says, the gospel is a rescue. He rescued us. Now get this. What is a rescue? A rescue is necessary only when you can't rescue yourself. You see, the problem with many of us is that, including myself, is that we treat Jesus as our helper, not as our rescuer. The gospel is a rescue. It's saving you from yourself. You see, the person over here living righteous, they're still trying to rescue themselves. The religious person is still trying to rescue themselves. They're trying to save themselves. They're trying to prove to God that they matter. They're trying to prove to God that they are living a worthy and acceptable life. They think that they can only be used by God based upon how clean their spiritual life is. And that's nothing more than a rescue mission where you are trying to literally rescue yourself. And this person over here, the non-religious person over here, is trying to rescue himself, but he's trying to rescue himself through his career. It's like Rocky, right? When he's talking to Mick and he's getting ready to fight Apollo Creed, and Mick is trying to talk him out of it, and, and Rocky bangs his fist on the mirror and he says, I gotta fight Apollo because this is how I know I matter. And that's exactly what we do with our career, our degree, our money, our resources, our justice, and all the other stuff we do. We're trying to prove to ourselves that we matter. We're trying to rescue ourselves. We're trying to save ourselves. Everybody, do not get it twisted. Everybody in this room, whether you know Jesus or not, is on a rescue mission. It's what kind of rescue mission are you on? The beautiful piece of the gospel is, is that Jesus rescues yourself, rescues you from yourself. It gets down to the taproot of what really drives you and rearranges it and gives you a whole nother freedom to live in this life, to do justice in the world, to transform cities, to bring shalom all over the world in a way that you're not trying to rescue yourself in the process. You're not trying to rescue yourself through your spouse. Right? You're not trying to get, right? You're not trying to solve daddy issues through your husband. You're not trying to solve mama issues through your right, wife. There's lots of ways we try and rescue ourselves. The gospel is a rescue. How? Very simple. 
he said in verse 4, one verse we're going to camp on, he says, he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself, or in some translations, on behalf of our sins. In other words, the gospel is an exchange. What do I mean by an exchange? Here's what I mean by an exchange. An exchange means that he took all of your sin, all of your unrighteousness, and exchanged it for all of his sinlessness and his righteousness. It's more than a sacrifice. It was what Bible scholars call substitutionary atonement. He didn't just sacrifice, but he exchanged his life for your life. Now, let me help you understand what happens with most of us in our theology when we don't understand exchange. Because when I talk to people or when I teach classes, at, uh, whether at a seminary or I teach at a, uh, at a school, and I'll ask them, I'll say, what's the beauty of the cross? And most of them will say, what's the beauty of Christ's life and how it impacts your life? And most of them will say, well, the fact that he died for our sins. And I said, well, why didn't he just die two seconds later after he was born, right? If it was all about Jesus taking God's wrath, drinking it all the way down to the dregs for you, why couldn't he have just like three seconds later after he was born from Mary die, right? Because most of us have a die-in-your-place theology. Jesus went to the cross. He died on a rugged cross in our place. And you know what? You're absolutely right. But that is only half of the gospel, only half the exchange, you see, Jesus not only died in your place, but he did much more than that. Remember when Jesus came to um, uh, John the Baptist and he said, look, man, I got to get baptized by you. John said, man, I, you're the Savior. I, really? He goes, yeah. To fulfill all righteousness, you got to baptize me. So John baptized him. Now, here's the question. Whose righteousness was Jesus fulfilling? Was he fulfilling his own? Well, of course not, because... Jesus is as righteous as you can get. So whose righteousness was he fulfilling? I'll tell you. He was fulfilling your righteousness. You see, what Jesus had to do, not only go to a cross and take God's wrath, which was reserved for you, and die in your place, but Jesus also had to live this perfect life. He had to meet the standards of the law for you. He had to not only die in your place, he also had to live in your place. Now, the beauty of this is what? The beauty of this, or the application of it, means what? It means, it means this. It means being a Christian doesn't mean you're perfect. Being a Christian means somebody lived perfectly in your place. That's what being a Christian is. It's not living perfect. It's understanding that in spite of your imperfections, somebody lived perfectly in your place, and that's Jesus. So he didn't just die in your place, he lived in your place. That's good news. Do you understand how that puts all kind of bounce and swag in your life? You know what I mean? Christians should live with a lot of humility, right? a lot of humble swag, right? Because we are different. And, it's, and the difference isn't how much work we do. Right? The difference is in how much of Jesus we share or how many plates we spend. Don't get it twisted. Those are the means God gives us to extend the kingdom and get this good news out. <laughs> but the swag comes from understanding that Jesus died and lived in your place. And when you understand that, when that fundamentally gets into the very core of your psyche, 
you are transformed. Remember John chapter 6? Jesus had just come down doing a bunch of miracles, and the disciples wanted to know what the trick was. And they said, what do we do? John 6, 28 and 29. What do we do to do the works you do? And Jesus said, here's, here's the Christian's work. Here's the work. The work isn't working. Here's the work, he says. The work is to believe in him who the Father has sent. That's the work. You know what your work is? It's not getting out there going to do more work, even though we do work. But the motivation underneath that work is what drives our work. But the real work is to fundamentally believe that you're forgiven, that you're accepted, that you're loved, that you're cared for, that somebody died and lived in your place. That is the fundamental work. And if you don't get that work, you will live either on the religious or non-religious continuum the rest of your life. The gospel is an exchange. And he did it, which I don't have time, 45 seconds? Wow. I'm going to leave you with the cliffhanger. We, we'll hit it in redux. No. All right. This is the last one. Can you guys give me a few more? Okay. All right. The last one, right? He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, so the gospel is a rescue, it's an exchange, but also he did it according to his will. All right? He did it according to his will. Now, does that mean? Does that mean that you play no role in your salvation? No, yes. Kind of, sort of. But no. God willed this. He set his affections on you. Don't you understand that your story didn't start the day you stepped foot on earth? God from beginning said, she, he, they're mine. It's done according to his will. I know some of you are going to say, well, you got you to have faith and you need to repent. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But you got to understand, that's nuanced, right? If we talk about, well, you, you got to believe. Well, let's, let's dissect believing here for a second, right? You believe in Jesus. You have faith in Jesus. But there's two sides to faith. The, there's the object of our faith, right? you got to believe in Jesus. But then there's the origin of our faith, right? It comes from Jesus. So you believe, and it's something that you do, but it's empowered by him. And without that empowering, you would never choose Jesus. Don't ever get it twisted and think somehow that you are a little more perceptive and a little more moral than your family members that haven't chosen Jesus. You see, when Paul said, look, this gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, and in verse 12, verse 1 he says, I didn't get this gospel by men or a man. And then he says in verse 12, it came by a revelation. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, how I came to the gospel proves the gospel. And that's fundamental to you understanding how you got here. It was done by God's will that you came to the gospel. It was because God opened your eyes, softened your heart, and gave you the ability to believe. But it also says, 
Well, some of us push back and say, what about repentance? You absolutely you need to repent. All day, every day. In fact, Martin Luther said, life, right? For the Christian, all of life is repentance. But that first original repentance, you got to dissect what that repentance means. Yeah. The object of our repentance is Jesus, but the origin of our repentance is who? Jesus. That's Acts 11:18. Paul turns his attention to the Gentiles, and what does he say? I'm going to the Gentiles to preach the good news of the gospel for what? That God perhaps may grant them repentance unto eternal life. May grant them, right? May give them the ability to repent. Don't you see Matthew 11, verse 27 says that nobody knows the Son unless the Father reveals them? Don't you understand John 6, says that unless you are, are brought or drugged to the Father, you will never pick them? Don't you understand in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin? Don't you understand in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot even see the light of the glory of the gospel. So how in the world, you being blind, dead, having a need to be drugged to the gospel and have your eyes open, according to Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, came to the gospel. And let me tell you why. It's because of God's will, right? And, and how you came to the gospel assumes the gospel. It is not synergism, right? You took one step, God took two. No, it's monergism. God broke through. He broke through. Listen, you're here, and you're thinking about this, and you don't know Jesus. But you're thinking about Jesus. And let me tell you why you're thinking about Jesus, because God is breaking through. And if you repent and believe, just know, when you repent and believe, do not think somehow it was because you reduced your understanding to what it meant to repent and believe, and therefore you're going to repent and believe and do God some favor. You didn't do God any favor. The gospel removes all boasting. That's Romans 3. And for some of you that are coming to your senses because you're, for the first time as a Christian, really understanding the gospel, it's because God is opening your eyes to the gospel because Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3 says the gospel is a mystery, and unless your eyes are open to it, you will never get it. Today, God is letting a lot of you get actually what the gospel is. So that we're not just Christians doing the front end of it, the back end of it, spinning plates. We're getting the heart of it. And when we get the heart of it, we move out doing the great commission and the great commandment together. Not to show up our own righteousness, not to rescue ourselves, but because of this love that has been wrought in our heart because of this good news. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your good news. God, transform hearts this morning. May the good news come and do what it does. May Jesus, you show up in this room and fill hearts with a fresh love and appreciation for who you are. And for those that don't know you, today is their day to know you and to experience you and to have their lives transformed by you because the gospel is that free and that liberating. We rejoice in you today. Amen.